Good morning. Good morning. So today we commemorated our teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha. It is said that he passed into parinirvana, final nirvana. Final nirvana means no more rebirths, no more coming and going, taking form and passing away. So it is said that his final nirvana occurred on what we would say February 15th, around 2,600 years ago. And when we listened to the verse that I read earlier, we heard the Buddha's words as he spoke to his disciple, Ananda, who was with him for so many years, decades, taking care of everything, remembering every word, every gesture, So at the end of the Buddha's life, he said, even though you may be venerating my body with heavenly flowers and sandalwood and music, even though you may be expressing your gratitude that way, remember this. The true way of showing your gratitude is not through chanting, bowing, offering, as we did this morning. Although all of these things are important, the true way is what? What do we do? What can we do? The practice? Hmm? Anything someone else said? I said follow the Dharma. Hmm. Live in the Dharma. Live, in other words, live the teachings through your own experience. Not simply following a doctrine. This is the big difference between Buddhism and many other faith traditions in which there is a received body of doctrine that we must follow, at least try to follow. But in Buddhism, the doctrine is, as you said, wake up to your own truth, yourself. So the Buddha's last words that we chant in the morning, typically, not this morning because we had a special service, but 
typically, Atadipa. This is what the Buddha said on his deathbed. Atadipa. What's that mean? You are the light itself. Sometimes Deepa is translated as island. You are the island in the stormy sea of samsara. You are it. Wake up to this. Wake up to who you truly are. Atadipa, atasarana. What is this? Hmm? Atasarana. You are the refuge. Ata, same ata, you. Ata sarana. So when it says, train thus, live in the Dharma, live your own experience, your own awakening of the teachings. Dharma Deepa means. Light of the Dharma, or island of the Dharma. Dhamma-sarana means Dhamma, you understand, is Pali for Dharma, okay, so we already got that one, right? Dharma, all right, got it. Sarana, we've been saying, sarana. Buddham saranam gachami. What is that sarana? Protection. Hmm? Protection. Atadipa. Right. You are the light. Ata sarana. What did we just say? Huh? You are the refuge. Okay, keep that in your mind. Sarana, refuge. So, dhamma sarana. Refuge of the Dharma, refuge of your own true nature, experiencing this in the truths as they arise at each moment. Not what the Buddha taught and you memorized and have received as a doctrine. What did the Buddha teach? He said, find out for yourself. Experience for yourself. And how do you experience for yourself? He said, Ananda, train thus. Live in the Dharma. Realize the refuge is all around you. Dharma is not something Buddha owns that you have to somehow borrow or rent or buy. Right? Live in the Dharma. Enter upon the path. What is this? Enter upon the path. What is entering upon the path? The Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path, which the Buddha taught in the Four Noble Truths. The Fourth Noble Truth. How to live. How to train thus. Train thus, he says. Training the mind. So Eightfold Path, we may not always remember. What are those eight 
things that I don't know, you know, write this, write that. But what about train thus, right here, right now? What are we doing? Zazen. Zazen is to train thus, to train the mind. Everyone without exception knows what an untrained mind is like. Now, here I can ask you and you'll come up with answers right away. Okay, it's certainly not a matter of remembering what dharma means or sadhana means, right? What's the untrained mind like? Some of you may not remember because you've been training for so long. (laughs) (laughs) But try. It's like chaos. Chaos, absolutely. It feels like chaos. Erratic. Hmm? Erratic. Erratic. Erratic? Yeah. yeah, erratic, not erotic. Could be erotic, too. <laughs> erotic, erratic, often quite tied to each other. Yes. What else? Muddy. Muddy. Clear. Muddy. Can't, can't see clearly. Mm. Anyone else have an experience of an untrained mind? How it has manifested for you? In the past five seconds? Monkey mind. Hmm? Monkey mind. mind. Jumping from branch to branch, thought to thought, past to future. Drifting. Mm. Another very good word, drifting. Just kind of vaguely, some kind of sleepy, drifty, dreamy, not here, not there. Yes, what else? Angry. Angry, caught up in strong emotions of anger, irritation, aversion, dislike, all those what we call negative emotions, fear, anxiety, the things that make us feel as though we have no equanimity, no balance, no harmony, right? Disruptive, disruptive emotions. Did we leave anything out? Self-centered. Hmm? Self-centered. Right, egocentric. All of these what we might call manifestations of an untrained mind stem basically from this idea of a separate self. I am the center of the universe. Do my bidding, each one of us. We may never say such a thing, of course, right? But there becomes a kind of underlying... uh, feeling of disgruntlement. Disgruntlement. Now, why aren't other people aware of how things should be according to me? Right? The center of the universe. I think it should be this way. How come they don't see it that way? You read the letters to the editor, you know, or anything like that, anything on the internet. So all these views that are self-centered... Views that are self-centered lead to the kinds of suffering that you've all talked about. 
And our clinging to self-centered views comes about because we don't have the training of mind. That's really what we do in our meditation. We're training the mind again and again. And the more we do... Well, let me back up. Why people come here? They may not think my mind is so chaotic or so muddy or so self-centered or so uh, filled with negative emotions, but they certainly may think I'm suffering in one way or another, right? Who has not felt that if you can think why you come here? Some kind of at least a hazy sense of disquiet or imbalance, if not actual suffering, that you can identify as such, right? Very few people come here to begin practice feeling total bliss. Although, it really is wonderful when someone does, because we can all feel that. Oh, here, here walks a person who's never been here before, but who is in a state of perfect equanimity, wants nothing, wants to get rid of nothing, is not needing anything, and simply feels, oh, this is a place that feels right. Every now and then someone comes that way. But most of us come because we feel, I can't take it anymore. And it's all their fault. And if this hadn't happened, then I'd be fine. But this did happen, therefore I'm not. It's always out there. And that's what's meant by self-centered. When we are not self-centered, we don't think it's out there. We see when we have really looked within that we ourselves are the cause of our own suffering. That's very difficult to accept. I was reading again this book by His Holiness Dalai Lama called The Universe in a Single Atom, The Convergence of Science and Spirituality. Probably some of you have read it. Anybody? I have to give a talk this Wednesday evening at the Rubin Museum with a neuroscientist. So I thought, gee, I should really (laughs) brush up on my neuroscience. But, um, you know, basically, you just go and you sit down and see what happens. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful book. And what we've been talking about, in a word, is karma. 
We feel things are awry. Therefore, we have some sense that we need to do something to take some new direction for our lives, what we may say, training the mind, and come to this practice. The Dalai Lama says karma literally means action. It refers to the intentional acts of sentient beings. He says such acts may be physical, of course, verbal. We all understand that we've done things physically or we've said things, or mental. I think most of us think we have a free ride when it comes to mental. You know, nobody really can see our thoughts. We may be saying in our minds all kinds of rather nasty things, but as long as we don't act on them, we think, okay, right? No, it's not okay. And here's where training the mind really can be seen as totally essential. He continues, even just thoughts or feelings, all of which have impacts upon the psyche of an individual, no matter how minute. I was speaking with Chica, with Lauren, yesterday, and she was saying, she referred to some study that has been done that shows that when you eat something that is not so healthy for you, like, say, a lot of sweets. It changes your brain in a negative way. You crave more. Conversely, when we train in meditation, it changes the brain, and we feel the discipline pervading everything because the brain itself changes becomes more harmonious. He continues, intentions result in acts, which result in effects that condition the mind towards certain traits and propensities, all of which may give rise to further intentions and actions. So this is what we mean by karma. When we read a verse such as this morning's, this is not how a perfect one is honored, respected, revered, venerated, or reverenced. Rather, it is the bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, the monk or nun, the man or woman lay follower who lives according to the Dharma, who enters upon the proper way, who walks in the law that honors, respects, reveres, and venerates a perfect one with the highest praise of all. And this is what is meant by aspiration in our practice aspiration to walk this way, 
We have to have this aspiration. It can't be just a vague sense of self-improvement. We may come out of that feeling of, I want to feel better, but that's only the first step in what becomes a very profound feeling of motivation. And His Holiness says, From the Buddhist perspective, the human quest for knowledge and understanding of one's existence stems from a profound aspiration to seek happiness and overcome suffering. To seek happiness and overcome suffering. Soon the personal or the selfish motivation falls away. And the more we sit, the more we train the mind thus, the more the bodhisattva impulse arises. And we feel we truly long for the happiness of others. It is not just a matter of convenience. Well, I'll worry about them after I take care of number one. Changes radically. And that may be because we have changed the brain through meditation. The Dalai Lama says, despite the tremendous success in observing close correlations between parts of the brain and mental states, I do not think current neuroscience has any real explanation of consciousness itself. Most of the time, we think the brain and the mind are the same, right? Or the brain and consciousness, same thing. Where is consciousness? In the brain. Therefore, we can analyze the brain and see all the chemical things that are happening in the brain and all the physiological things, and that's consciousness. But not from a Buddhist standpoint. According to Buddhism, His Holiness says, though consciousness and matter can and do contribute toward the origination of each other, one can never become a substantial cause of the other. So consciousness is integrally related to causation or karma. What else does he say? The contemplative method, as developed by Buddhism, is an empirical use of introspection, sustained by rigorous training in technique and robust testing of the reliability of experience. So again, this is not something you take someone else's word for. You do this training. You use your introspection. You rigorously look at what is going on in your mind. And you see how often you get caught up in any one sitting, right? How often you get caught up in thoughts of the past, worries about the future, concerns about whether such and such is going to be good or not, all the perceptual processes. And you notice that with careful attention to the breath, you find you are 
just in that very moment, not falling into the past, not being brought into the future, but just completely with it. How many times does this occur? How many times do you breathe in any one sitting? Does anybody have any idea? How many times do you breathe in a minute? The more you sit, the fewer times. Maybe four. Long breaths, long exhalations. So maybe four times a minute. How many minutes in a sitting? Forty, let's just say. So 40 times four? Hmm? Somebody, somebody knows? 40 times four? 160. So 160 breaths in one sitting, right? How many of those 160 breaths are completely with it? This is what we're doing. We're training ourselves to return, to return to this. Why? What's so special about breath? You might wonder, what's the big deal? Huh? It's very immediate. It's very immediate. It's right here. It's sustaining. But you usually don't pay attention to it, right? Right. Yeah. So what is the big deal about paying attention to it? Then the immediacy really happens. It allows um, cessation of thought. So little by little, the thought processes just fall away. If you are really one with the breath, it is just this happening in this We call it present, but there is no such thing as present thing, meaning something you can grasp, right? You can't say, okay, the present began when? And its end is, right? No. So this feeling of just this breath allows this immediacy of attention to occur. And the more we do it, the more familiar it feels. The more familiar it feels, the less resistance we have. The less resistance we have, the more deeply we can go into pure awareness, calm abiding, just equanimity. This takes us through our lives, no matter what happens. This is the part that people think, okay, I'm here, but I'll never get there because I'm always going to be shaken by whatever untoward things happen in my life. How many of you feel that way? I'd like to feel that I can trust, but I don't. I mean, really, if you're honest, you're going to raise your hand, right? I'd like to think that I'd be able to just be with it, but in fact, I know that I'm going to be upset. I'm going to be thrown off. And to be honest, this is just our human experience because most of us have not come to the point where we are in nirvana as a day-in and day-out experience. 
most of us are plagued by circumstances, thrown by situations we didn't expect. So that's why we do mind training. That's why we sit. That's why we change our minds. And definitely change the brain. We have to change the mind in order for the brain to change in this wonderful way that creates a more uh, peaceful, inner, peace, inner peaceful way of living. Scientists are always trying to measure things. And sure enough, a bunch of scientists who are experimenting about issues that we're talking about here decided that they wanted to do experiments on some hermits living in the Himalayas, including the mountains around Dharamsala. His Holiness said, scientific experimentation on human subjects raises numerous ethical issues. For the hermits who have chosen a life of solitude in the mountains, there is the added complication that such experimentation constitutes a profound intrusion into their lives and spiritual practice. As you can imagine, there you are at 12,000 feet, sitting in your cave for 12 years, and along comes a team of people with mobile equipment, and they want to put these electrodes on your brain and say, meditate. It is not surprising that initially many of these hermits were reluctant. Apart from anything else, most simply couldn't see the point other than satisfying the curiosity of some odd men carrying machines. However, His Holiness said, I felt very strongly and still do feel that the application of science to understanding the consciousness of meditators is most important, and I made a great effort to persuade the hermits to allow the experiments to take place. I argue that they should undergo the experiments out of altruism. If the good effects of quieting the mind and cultivating wholesome mental states can be demonstrated scientifically, this may have beneficial results for others. So, you know, people may ask you, why are you going to the Zendo? Right? And you might say, well, I feel better. And they may say, well, I feel better after a good drink. But you can say, good effects of quieting the mind and cultivating wholesome mental states have been demonstrated scientifically among the hermits in the Himalayas. Many other places, too. So he says, I only hope I was not too heavy-handed. A number of hermits accepted. Persuaded, I hope, by my argument, rather than simply submitting to the authority of the Dalai Lama's office. (laughs) Anyway, you may have heard of the term brain plasticity, a growing subdiscipline of neuroscience. Traits that were assumed to be fixed, such as personality, disposition, even moods, are not permanent. And mental exercises or changes can affect these traits. Experiments have shown that experienced meditators have more activity in the left frontal lobe. Do you know where your left frontal lobe is? 
Most likely, right? <laughs> the part of the brain associated with positive emotions, such as happiness, joy, and contentment. So here you have it. We're doing mind training. Our mind training is affecting the brain. The brain becomes happier. We want to go to the zendo more often. We want to share this experience. We feel more content in our lives. Horrible things happen to us. We say, okay, call the insurance company. And we continue. We go back. We sit. And the left frontal lobe becomes more active. And the more active it becomes, the happier we are. And horrible things happen. And we say, oh, damn. Now what? Okay, figure it out. And go back and sit. And the frontal lobe becomes more active. You see how it goes? Then we die. And... We greet this process with a very different feeling, very different feeling. Every one of us will come to this point. With this practice, we can greet death as a change. Taking off this suit of clothing, putting on a new, and bringing this active left frontal lobe Consciousness, happiness, equanimity into our next lives. You don't have to believe this, but just in case you do, imagine this little baby is going to be born somewhere in the most wonderful circumstances, having done this mind training assiduously, and then reaching this point of transition, and then Okay, looking through the universe. Oh, there is a nice couple over there. I think I'm going to go there. Mm, There's another one. Oh, maybe over here. Ah, The Mountains of Tibet, a children's book, shows this passage into next life in the most adorable way. I don't know if anyone has read that book. Yes. So you decide, best parents for me this time around, best circumstances to continue my practice. This is the point, right? Not for some personal, self-centered, as Jika put it, short-lived alleviation of suffering, but for true support for transformative being. And each one of you here, has one way or another chosen this life. This has brought you to this practice. You may not realize it. You may be kicking and screaming, saying, when can I get out of here? Nonetheless, there's something that brought you from the past. And here we are. Here we are, living this out together. Isn't it wonderful? Do you feel your left lobe resonating? (laughs) 